Welcome to the CEC Report. It's the 22nd of September. I'm Robert Barwick. I'm joined today by CEC researcher Jeremy Beck. Welcome, Jeremy. Thanks, Robbie. In this week's CEC Report, banks heading into global storm, interest rates set to rise, and the BIS finds derivatives are debt. And second, the market doesn't need certainty. Australians need electricity. So, Jeremy, before we get into this, just to remind the viewers, we and I want to say, especially today, because we're going to get a little bit technical on people. Um, so, what we cover in the CEC report is elaborated in our weekly Australian Alert Service. And if you haven't got a copy before, there's a standing offer. You can call in on our toll-free number and get a copy. Um, if you want the kinds of material we're discussing to, to see the details. The devil is in the detail. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely do that and get involved. There's, there's lots that we're doing on these issues. We don't just talk about information for its own sake. We're activating on it, right? And you can get involved in that. And believe me, it works. Um, we're a political force in Australia, the CEC, and around the world. And, you know, we're in a crisis of the economy and politics and the potential for war. We've got to do something about it. We're doing something about it, so get involved. People need to know the solutions. You hear about the problems non-stop, but All the time. we know exactly what to do to get out of this mess. All right, so that said, let's get into it. Banks heading into global storm. Interest rates set to rise. BIS finds derivatives are debt. So there's a, an event happening next week. Uh, sorry, next month, Jeremy, in October. The United States Federal Reserve has scheduled next month it will start selling assets. And what that means is bonds. Mm -hmm. Since the global financial crisis in 2008, the US Federal Reserve, the Bank of Japan, the Bank of England, and the European Central Bank have been printing money to prop up the banks. And the way they've been doing it is they've been buying their paper, which basically means bonds that's backed up by all sorts of rubbish, right? And it's been keeping the banks propped up. So the money is printed, it's created money to do it, but they've been so that, and they've been they bought a massive amount of them. Something like the, the, between them, they've got something like fourteen trillion dollars of these assets on their books, and the Federal Reserve's got the most. So, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen, has said, "Well, the economy is great," and right there is a flaw, <laughs> right? But she said the economy is great, so we can now um, not only just stop doing the money printing, we can actually start actively selling these bonds. What people have to understand is it's the the zero interest rates or the rock bottom interest rates we have around the world, and in Australia they're not quite zero, but they're very low. They are low because of this bond buying program, mm-hmm. right? So when that's reversed, interest rates are going to maybe gradually at first, but they're definitely going to start going up. And a small rise is going to really hit people very, very hard. Well, because global debt has increased by there's various measures. The minimum is by at least a third since mm. the crisis. Mm. More debt, much more debt in the hit than in the history of the world. Mm. And it's all got an interest mm. attached to it, right? You mm. start having to pay extra interest on it, it's going to bankrupt a lot of people, a lot of institutions. This is going to have a chain reaction effect. In Australia, it's going to have a chain reaction effect on the housing market, mm. right? We have a housing bubble that's an undeniable bubble and it's being propped up by the cheapest interest rates in the world. And you know, as we've cited on here, there was a figure um, a few months ago that if interest rates went up by even, I think, um, 0.45 of a, of a percent, 45 basis points, uh, 57% of Australians, mm. mortgage holders, would be in severe mortgage stress. 
just that, just that amount. If I had to pay, if I had to pay an extra hundred dollars a month on their mortgage, mm. they wouldn't be able to. Mm. Right? This is the kind of situation we're in. So, there's a real. A lot of the world is very worried about that. Now, so that said, I'm about. To, let's go through something that's a bit more technical that people should be equally worried about. Mm. So, what's happened is. The Bank for International Settlements, Jeremy, which is known as the Central Bank of Central Banks, it's in Switzerland. Um, they sort of try and they give orders to the central banks. In the last few weeks, we've been talking here about how APRA, our bank regulator, is, is sort of a branch of theirs. Most of what the Bank for International Settlements does is pretty bad. Um, they, they're there to protect the banking system per se, but a lot of people work there various, you know, in a sort of a bureaucratic role. A group of them have just written a report on derivatives, which is mind-blowing in its implications. Because what they've found is that there's an extra 13 to $14 trillion in hidden foreign US dollar denominated debt. Mm. So it's real debt, they're saying. It's there in the system. Mm. That amount of money, 13 to $14 trillion, it's more than double what was known to exist. They thought the figure was $10 trillion. Now they're having to say, well, it's probably about $23, $24 trillion. Um, but it's been hidden, and it's been hidden in derivatives. And the derivatives it was hidden, that it was hidden is called for foreign exchange derivatives, foreign exchange forwards and foreign exchange swaps. Now, this is not hidden per se. What it is, it's... it's, it's a, Based on the hidden hidden part is because of accounting practices. These are accepted accounting practices that have always applied to derivatives. And Jeremy, we've argued, and I'm going to play a video in a minute showing this. Um, other experts have argued this should never have been the case. Derivatives should never have been able to be used like this, where you pretend that this is not debt, right? Um, They've hit, they, they, there's a term for these types of derivatives and it's called off-balance sheet. So normal accounting for, for any kind of bank or business is its, life, its assets and its liabilities are on a balance sheet. These derivatives, which add up to huge amounts of money, were allowed to be accounted for off-balance sheet. Oh, they don't have a material impact on the performance of the bank, right, in terms of whether it's solvent or not. Um, now, I'll just try and explain a little bit. I've written down some notes here. But again, come and you know get, get our material if you want. Um, just let's talk about a swap, these foreign exchange swaps. In a swap, you swap with someone else, another bank, and you agree to swap back at a certain point in time, right? It's usually, and it's a bit less than a year, actually. Um, so if it's, say, $100 million you're swapping from your currency to someone else's currency, you'll only lose or gain on that by how much the currencies fluctuate. Right, so the swap is $100 million, but there's a little margin of loss or gain. The, the face value, the notional principle is $100 million. The little margin of loss or gain is the net value. Mm. Right? So what the banks do, um, and a lot, often that net value is about 1% of the face value. The banks don't count the face value on their books. They count the net value. That's what they've been allowed to do. So the face, the face value, the big amount, is kept off balance sheet. The net value shows up on their balance sheet. And they say, oh, it's a much tinier problem than, than what you um, say. However, the nature of derivatives is you engage in a swap like that, then you go and hedge that swap because you go and engage in a swap or a forward with someone else. Your counterparty goes and engages with other swaps and forwards to hedge those swaps. They go and engage with someone else. They go and engage with someone else. They do these swaps all down the line. You get what they call a daisy chain of these things. And it's all accounted for at these much smaller values and the big values are headed off balance sheet. 
Now in Australia, just to show you a picture of this, the big banks, our big four banks, we'll put our graph on the, on the, um, on the, on the board, um, look at their derivatives exposure compared to their assets and, and um, uh, uh, deposits. That's what, that's what we show in the graphs, right? Much, much bigger. Well, that amount of derivatives exposure, the big red bar there, that is off balance sheet. That's not accounted for. Um, and the year this, the, the, with the graph we've got up there, you see that the CBA uh, has a, a, a bolder bar and then it, it gets more transparent because from in 2011, from 2011 onwards, from 2012 onwards, they stopped disclosing their full amount. They only disclosed the net amount. And at the full amount, um, uh, at that time in 2011, the last time they disclosed it was $3 trillion. The net amount on their books was $33 billion, so it was about 1%. So they, they, they account for the, for the 1%, not the whole percent, right? Mm -hmm. That's the nature of the CBA. So what the Bank for International Settlements has just said, it was this, this study was conducted by um, their chief economist, Claudio Barrio, and the, the Daily Telegraph the other day described him as the high priest of the global banking fraternity, so he's, no, he's not a nobody. He... Their study pointed out that there are three ways to hedge a foreign asset purchase, and the three ways essentially do the same thing. But one of the three ways, called a repurchase agreement, that is recorded on books of banks as a debt if they do it that way. It's a, it's a straight up debt. The other two ways, this study says it's essentially the same thing, it does this, has the same effect, that's not recorded as a debt. And these guys are saying, why is that? Why is that not recorded as a debt, given it's essentially the same types of transactions? So they're, they're, they're posing a question here which is going to have big implications when they, by, by posing it. Then they say, look, the other problem with this is that the types of contracts we're talking about which are not recorded as debt, they are notoriously short-term, less than 12 months, and I'll, we'll put a graph on the, on the board there that shows that these, these foreign exchange derivatives are about $60 trillion now, right? Most of them are less than one year. And what that means is when you have a, an event, Jeremy, like 2008, when the global financial system had a credit crunch, these short-term liabilities that banks had, they couldn't roll them over. Mm. But they owed them. They were, con they were debts they actually owed, right? And governments had to step in and bail them out. And this is what this BIS report is saying. Look, they, they, that's just as much a, a debt to the bank as any other debt they've got. They should be counted as debts. Um, there are, these things are a disaster waiting to happen. Now, just to underscore this, I want to play a quick video from a guy named Frank Partnoy. And Frank Partnoy wrote an excellent book on derivatives in 1997 called Fiasco, Blood in the Water on Wall Street. He was a derivatives trader, and he said he got out of the derivatives trade because he was worried that he'd go to jail because he was seeing fraud that he was forced to participate in. He thought, this, is, this should be illegal. I don't want to go to jail. I'm getting out. And he blew the whistle on it. If he had, they had to listen to him then... These things should have all been banned, but they weren't. He's now a professor, a law professor, and he does. He explains why in this video he makes the point that off-balance sheet accounting shouldn't be allowed to exist. Mm. Banks should be forced to account for these things properly. So just have a quick look at Frank. I'm Frank Partnoy, and this is a balance sheet. It is a real balance sheet of an actual company. Who is it? Well, let's look at it. 2006, 2007, 2008, 2009, we know what happened in those years. Company starts off strong, lots of assets, plenty of equity. 2007, tough year, still looks good, rock solid. 2008, very tough year, looks great. 2009, rocking year in the markets. This is a stable company. Who is this? 
Do you know? I'm a professor, so I get to ask questions. Do you know who it is? Is this McDonald's? Is this a stable company that somehow survived the crisis? Do you know? Citigroup. This is the actual balance sheet of Citigroup. I want to talk about off-balance sheet transactions, what's not here. This is a company that went from a market capitalization of a quarter trillion dollars to virtually zero. This is a company that went from making tens of billions of dollars a year to losing tens of billions of dollars a year. This is a company that required the government to ring fence $306 billion of its liabilities in its own off-balance sheet transaction. And that's the picture of this company according to the balance sheet. What one word describes Citigroup's balance sheet? <laughs> I'll use a different F word, fiction instead of fraud. <laughs> the balance sheet is not a trivial document. It's a document that regulators rely on. It's a document that is the source of information for tier one and tier two capital. It's a document that regulations depend on. It's a document that investors look to. And it is a document that is a work of fiction. And until financial reform takes this into account, it won't work. All right, and so the example he gives there, of course, Citibank, that, that Citibank, not only did its balance sheet through the whole crisis look the same, right? Like nothing was wrong. It ended up getting the biggest bailout of any bank in the world mm. from the 2008 crisis. Mm. And it just shows you what a fraud this off-balance sheet accounting is. So look at this graph now. This is the off-balance sheet exposure of Australia's banks, which Jeremy has generated for me today. Um, this is from figures from the Reserve Bank. And the, the full amount adds up to $36 trillion. Jeremy, you've gone and taken the, the smaller amount there with Mark, which is just the foreign exchange derivatives mm -hmm. that the BIS report focuses on. Mm -hmm. That adds up to $8 trillion. Mm -hmm. If that $8 trillion, just that part, not the big amount, if the banks were forced to account for that $8 trillion as debt, Jeremy, what would, do, what would it do to them? Well, they would all, all be bankrupt. Really, the, these banks... They have been reporting these derivatives, the full face value, except the CBA uh, and, and recently the NAB. But now uh, they all report it to the RBA. That's where I got the figures from. So you can get the grand total, uh, yeah. the, the $36 trillion odd, and it fluctuates a bit. You can see it going up and down, but the general trend is skyrocketing. Yeah. Uh, but Mostly since all, the last crisis. Yeah, and it's more than doubled since the GFC in 2008. So, yeah, they'd all be bankrupt. So the Bank for International Settlements principle that they've mm. said in this report is applied in Australia. I'm looking at every view of the CEC mm. report now. Your bank would be bankrupt. Mm. That's the bottom line here. This, is, this report has huge implications. We, we have to see how it gets applied. But that's why we need things like Glass-Steagall. We don't have more time to talk about that now. We've talk, we talk about it a lot in this pro program. If you want to know about the solutions to it, like I said, call in and get a copy of the Australian Alert Service. Let's take a break, Jeremy, and when we come back, we'll discuss energy. Welcome back to the CEC Report. The market doesn't need certainty. Australians need electricity. Um, Australia, Jeremy, as you wrote in the Australian Alert Service this week, is having a phony debate on the electricity crisis. Mm -hmm. right? So... And it's all been put in the, in, the, in the context of climate change. And I know that, you know, mm -hmm. you'd love to talk about that, but we don't have time. We'll, <laughs> we'll do a whole segment on that. But anyway, so one side is pushing renewables in their bid to save the planet, um, but at the expense of reliability, yeah, yeah. right? We have this in South Australia's a basket case. 
The other side, you know, the liberal side of politics, the conservative side, they're pushing uh, coal for reliable baseload electricity. Except that side is where is, is the strongest on the fact on this stupid idea that the whole system should be privatised. We should have yeah, a privatised yeah. electricity system. And they so they created the privatised system in the national electricity market. And that's what they created is a system that, that profits from shortages. Yeah, oh, for sure. Right? They want shortages. And if, go watch the smartest guys in the room. Oh, the story about Enron, you know, private electricity providers want shortages. So you can't trust any of them. Um, both sides are fixated on the market. And just, you know, I challenge people, watch, when, watch the news, watch the discussion. It's all about the market needs certainty. We can do this for the market. We can do that for the market. Cut the crap. Mm. Australians need electricity, and for a hundred years, governments provided it so we could use it, and that's all. That's what the market was. None of this other garbage, yeah. right? So, what we want to talk about is something to change the whole debate, mm. right? But first, but on the principle first, where uh, that um, all of this should be done by the governments, mm-hmm. right? Electricity is a public good that should not be open to be profiteered on by private speculators. Yep. Right. Well, it used to work like that very well. Exactly. That's how we developed. And, and mm. no, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. So neither side have credibility on this. A pox on both their houses. But let's change the debate, Jeremy. Um, a couple of things first. We are heading into this year, this summer, a period of a danger of blackouts. Mm. Everyone's worried about that. What could governments do immediately? Governments, not, mm. not the market, stuff the mm. market. What could governments do to protect us? There are gas turbines which can be installed very quickly, small or medium size, they're around about 30 something megawatts, uh, which could be installed in a couple of weeks. You just buy them off the shelf and sort of using aircraft technology of turbines. And I know the South Australia government is doing that and you know, good on them for doing that. You know, it's, it's a problem that they're also going along with the wind energy, which is pretty useless. They cause the mess they're solving, yeah. but at least they're solving it as a government. At least they're doing that. Yep. Uh, and we really need to buy as many as possible as is required so that everyone, every business, every household will have electricity and they won't be forced to go down the demand management path, which is saying, oh, we're going to have a hot day today. You're going to have to turn off your air conditioner or this business has got to shut down. That is crazy. Uh, we yep. need to buy as many as is required. So, that, so if the government took, did this as their responsibility, we yeah. don't have to have any blackouts at all, yeah. right? Yeah. But if we do, it's because they're not going to do this approach. Yeah. Okay. Now let's talk more long term. Mm. Shouldn't we be looking way beyond coal, gas and renewables? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thorium that uh, I've written about in the, the most recent copy of the Australian Alert Service here, thorium is the ideal nuclear fuel, which even has support of a lot of environmentalists, um, believe it or not. Uh, thorium uh, produces next to no so-called waste uh, because you use the entire lot uh, and with the uranium you've got to enrich it whereas the thorium you can use the entire fuel so you you can have enormous energy densities which uh, well let's so talk I want to talk you to talk yeah, about energy density yeah. in a minute maybe we'll elaborate after the break just yeah. before we do though we also promote fusion Mm. Right, like the world should be looking at this. Here's a technology that's possible in the future. We know mm. it works because we have thermonuclear bombs. Yeah. Um, but we, that has the, the difference between thorium and fusion is, of course, fusion has yet to be developed. Whereas we could yeah. apply thorium now. Yeah. Right? Well, thorium technology is known technology. They even have reactors, test reactors in the 1960s. Yeah. Uh, you had the Oak Ridge, uh, the laboratory there in the United States. All right. Let's take a break, and we'll continue this after. Thank you. 
Welcome back to the CEC report where we're discussing the market doesn't need certainty, Australians need electricity. And Jeremy, before the break, you were talking about thorium mm. and you mentioned this concept of um, energy density mm-hmm. and that's what makes um, power sources like thorium and mm. fusion, if we get there, much more superior mm-hmm, to anything mm-hmm. we've got now, right? Well, that's for sure. You could hold, and thorium is, is a, a very, very slightly radioactive metal you could hold it in your hand. Uh, the reason why it's slightly radioactive is it has a half-life of several times the, the life of the whole Earth, billions of years. So it's virtually emitting no radiation at all. Anyway, uh, you could have a lump of thorium in your hand that would supply you your entire life's energy requirements your, for your, your entire life. You as a human being at yeah. a decent standard of yeah. living could yeah. have your whole energy requirement in the yeah. palm of your hand. just a small golf ball size of thorium. That, that's how energy dense it is. And how does it compare yeah. to other yeah. sources of power? Well, I've got a uh, diagram here which covers thorium. This is using an example. Six kilograms of thorium would equal 230 train cars of bitumous coal or 600 train cars of brown coal, or um, 440 million cubic feet of natural gas, which is about 15% of uh, one of these massive LPG tankers, or the equivalent of 300 kilograms of enriched 3% uranium in a pressurised water reactor. So uranium is quite energy dense, it's 300 kilograms. Thorium, much more. Uh, that's just six kilograms there. And, and the other thing, in comparison to uranium, it's also much more abundant, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, several times more abundant in the Earth's crust. Where do we get it from? Uh, it's, it, it's found in sands, actually. Uh, and it's, it's very abundant in Australia, which is an added bonus for us. India's got the biggest reserves, then Brazil. Australia's got nearly as much. Yeah, there's more than enough to last the whole planet forever. They, you'll never run out. That's so common. Yeah. So why do we have all these uranium reactors? Mm. There's lots of nuclear reactors in the world, as we know, mm. well over 400 mm. or something. Why are they all uranium mm. and not thorium? You have to go back to that period in the 1960s when there was a Cold War and there was a real fear of this, you know, reds under the bed, whatnot. And it was all based on weaponization, and the uranium reactors could produce the, the, the nuclear bombs, which the thorium reactors couldn't. So at the end of the day, the decision was, it was political. Uh, yeah. Uranium was working, uh, thorium was working back then, but uranium was needed for the weaponisation. Yeah, and that, so that's the difference. And if, so, you know, a lot of people have concerns about anything to do with nuclear, but with thorium you don't have the, you have far less of a problem with nuclear bomb proliferation. Mm. You have far less of a problem with waste, I understand. Mm-hmm. You know, that, mm-hmm. yeah. um, far less waste than uranium, and, it has, and it's far more efficient than uranium, yeah, yeah. and it could actually solve our problems. Mm. Um, and you compare that, if, so if we took that approach as a, as, a, as a nation to say, look, let's actually solve this. Mm. Oh, by the way, although we don't care, mm-hmm. it's emissions free because it's nuclear, yeah, right? Yeah, and yeah. so it, it ticks all the boxes yeah, for everybody. Yeah. It can completely trump the whole debate. That's right. Um, but take us somewhere that can develop the country as opposed to, before we run out of time, this, the current debate, which is f- focused on the market, here you have AGL, one of the private electricity providers that owns this little power station that, doesn't want it, that wants to shut it down. Um, an AGL investor said to uh, the Financial Review on the 13th of September, his, his solution to the crisis was, um, shut down the Portland aluminium smelter, then you won't have a shortage, right? Yeah. Just well, shut down the whole economy, that's how we'll fix it. We can't do that. Mm-hmm. We've already shut down the automotive industry. What else do we want to shut down? No, exactly. All right, so Jeremy, thanks for joining us again. We're, as usual, we've run out of time. 
Get the CEC report and the Australian Alert Service and thanks for tuning in.